while the clouds roll back and the stars fill the night that's when i'm gonna stand up take my people Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will be looking at, uh, this will be part five of seven of my read-through of W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America. And um, we're coming to the end of this book. Um, we're kind of in the meat of it, um, where there's a lot of details. We kind of know his approach, his style, his uh, his uh overall perspective on things we're not yet to his like conclusions which are really awesome um and powerful and we'll talk about those in episode seven but with uh the previous episode this episode and the next episode it's really kind of a bit of a grind getting through the material he has to lay out to fully make his case and i'm just struck by you know how he's able to pull together such an alternative narrative from the sources he had if we look at let's just take chapter 11, because we're going to do chapter 11 and 12 today. Um, this is the black proletariat in Mississippi and Louisiana. And I've talked about sources before, but I, I think it's useful to talk about it uh, again. If we look at his footnotes, it's, it's a page and a half or so of, of footnotes. And, and they're all one line footnotes that uh, basically just mention the book, the author of the book title and the page number. And there's not many books. He didn't use Ibid, but if he did, There'd be a lot of them here. Um, so his main source for Mississippi is Gardner Reconstruction in Mississippi. Uh, he also uses this guy Lynch, the facts of Reconstruction, quite a lot. For Louisiana, his main source is, he's got a little more diversity in his sources for Louisiana, but it relies heavily on a guy, Warmonth, War Politics and Reconstruction, um, Finklin, the History of Reconstruction of Louisiana. He's got a few primary sources here, but not um, many. Now, I've talked about his bibliography before. Um, interestingly, the bi bibliography does not, uh, as far as I can tell, include uh, Gardner. I looked at it a few times. Uh, James Winford Gardner is the author of this, uh, published in 1901. And this is uh, a Dunning School work. Uh, if we, we can see it just from the, if we go to Amazon, it, you, can, you know, it's public domain now, so it's there's a create space. Um, entry for it. Um, originally published in 1901, this is the history of Reconstruction period in Mississippi. It includes carpetbaggers, economic aspects of Reconstruction, Congressional Reconstruction, Secession and the War, the reestablishment of civil government, and more. That, I don't know who wrote that, uh, if that's from the original text, but the reestablishment of civil government, um, th this is this is done in school, pretty obviously. And one of the reviews says it's a post-Confederate view of Reconstruction. Um, uh, based on a, a PhD dissertation. Now, the other work he uses here, Lynch, The Facts of Reconstruction, is under his list of black historians. So, um, so that's maybe more reliable. But my point is, he is relying on white historians largely for his evidence, and he's pulling it together in new ways, which is possible to do because these historians were, of course, relied on they relied on primary sources and they 
Were they trying to be objective? Um, I would give them the benefit of the doubt in most cases. Obviously, they were, they were blinded by racism and their own biases, just like any historian. And I'm not saying this work is valuable, but when you, but, you know, when, when you're in a desert, you don't, you don't, um, you don't reject the, the, the muddy water, right? You take what you can get uh, for sources. Um, and as we see from his bibliography, black scholars writing about Reconstruction from a more sympathetic view um, were, were limited. There weren't many. And a lot of those works listed there are articles and journals. So like journals like the, the Journal of Negro History, which was just beginning. I think it's now the Journal of African-American History. But that wasn't read by mainstream white historians at the time. So, you know, this is what he had to base his, his evidence off of. And he, and, and I think he does pretty well. I, I got to praise him for that. But it does create a little bit of a, of a limitation at times. You can, when, you, when you've read things like Foner, or if you've read uh, Race and Reunion, or if you've read, uh, what's that guy, Liptwick, if you've read uh, David Blight, Race and Reunion, I'm thinking of, what's the one, uh, The World Under Our Feet, Han, Stephen Han, if you read these new Reconstruction histories, it's uh, it's clear how limited of a picture Du Bois is actually able to pull from here, and, and I think it does date the book a little bit. I think it's it's maybe this is the reason why most people just kind of maybe read the propaganda history, the last chapter, and kind of move on from there. Um, and, and I do think the middle parts of this book are a bit of a slog because he is just kind of laying out the evidence uh, of black activism, um, and sometimes he's a little bit. He's, he kind of categorizes things a little strictly and, and not in a very narrative way, unfortunately. But, you know, for what he's trying to do, I think he does a pretty good job. Um, that, that's the only point I want to make here about the, the sources once again. But anyways, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Chapter 11, the black proletariat in Mississippi and Louisiana. Now, in the last chapter, we had the black proletariat in South Carolina, and he used a footnote to explain why he's using this Marxist language, and he justified it. And, and actually, at one point, limits his use of this, saying maybe I can't go as far as I want to in this because the historical evidence doesn't allow it. But he does want to have this Marxist focus. Uh, so South Carolina was a black majority uh, country and also had a, it was also a place, of course, it was in colonial America, so there's a longer history of blacks living there, more free blacks, uh, a handful of more educated blacks. It's also a place that experienced Reconstruction earlier with the Sea Islands uh, that were occupied early in the war. And you had, uh, I think, hundreds of thousands of, of slaves were reconstructed even during the war. Um, so South Carolina was a, a special case study of, of of a former slave population that was like more ready to rule from day one. So they were able to run with their, um, with voting rights to implement a more radical program. Mississippi and Louisiana, now these are two very different states, obviously. Um, Louisiana with its French history and it's in a deeper colonial past with French colonization and this connection with Haiti and it's more complex racial dynamics. All that stuff, Du Bois doesn't really get into that much, but Mississippi, of course, is more newly colonized by the United States. Very, very small free black population, I think numbered like in the hundreds. Um, and uh, vast majority of, of, of enslaved people.
people, a, a region untouched by the Civil War, so you had less runaways from Mississippi like you did in the border states or Virginia, places where the war was being fought. So slavery, uh, slavery was more entrenched in Mississippi. Um, but also in Louisiana and Mississippi, you have a slight black majority, but it's not as extreme as in South Carolina. So they are kind of a separate case. Um, I think there probably should be two case studies because they have such different histories and, and perspectives on race. But Du Bois, of course, uh, his book's already getting a little long um, by this point. So he groups these together. He says, Mississippi has called, been called a peculiar, typical state in which to study Reconstruction, but this should be modified. In direct contrast to South Carolina, Mississippi was the place where first and last Negroes were largely deprived of any opportunity for land ownership, end quote. So the, the situation's different here because the planter class, well, the blacks who got out of slavery were in a more disadvantaged position compared to some other states, uh, not having a large free black population, not having a, a very diverse economy. But this also meant that the planter class was more entrenched. The war didn't affect it. So you didn't have areas like in Georgia or South Carolina where you had like land redistribution taking place during the war. Uh, the planter class violently disrupted as much. Vir Mississippi, by and large, except in the valley, was untouched by the war compared to others. Of course, no part of the South was untouched in the war politically, you know, in terms of family and loss of life and all that. But in terms of like, slavery itself, it was the least disrupted um, there. Maybe Alabama, you can make a case for two, but there you don't have a black majority. So that, that puts it in a different category in Du Bois's logic. So he's really interested in like, where is the political struggle in each of these states? And I think that's, and, and where is political power going to end up here? So these are states where blacks, you know, had the numbers to establish political power, but it's also a place where the planter class was strongest and most entrenched and, and most able to resist um, those, over, those attempts to, to take power from them. So that's really the situation we get in these states, and, and he just kind of lays that, that out. So the struggle in, in Mississippi is going to be much more along the, 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 the former slaves versus a very relatively powerful planter class. So it's, it's in a way, it's the most reactionary. And I, and I think Mississippi, of course, has this reputation of being one of the more reactionary states in respect to civil rights and, and, and you know, black rights uh, because of, of just the, you know, if you think of like the civil rights movement and the struggles against civil rights by the white South, Mississippi stands out in our minds, right? It's, of course, where the Freedom Summer murders took place. Um, and, and I think, of course, Du Bois doesn't know that, but from our own perspective, it's easy to look at this and say, yeah, this is kind of Mississippi's distinctive fate for historical and demographic reasons, perhaps. Um, here's how he concludes it. Here's a record which is not bad. There was no violent revolution in Mississippi. There was no attack on civilization and culture. There was an increased expense, partially for legitimate objects, partly without doubt by injudicious and careless expenditure, possibly in some cases by corrupt expenditure. And, and quote. Um, now, Du Bois has this issue where the dominant narrative of the Dunning School is that of corruption, is that the Reconstruction governments were corrupt. And he, of course, wants to challenge that, but like, when all the literature around him is focusing on that, it's hard for him to avoid it. It's like if everyone is talking about that, 
it's it's hard to get a word in edgewise against that. Now you can kind of say, well, it's not as important as these other things, but when all the scholarship is dominated by like one perspective, you have to kind of break through of it brick by brick. And so Du Bois is saying, well, there's other stuff going on. There were other policies passed and the reconstruction wasn't as bad as as maybe you said, but it's there. He can't just say it's not there because that would be denying like the evidence presented in the in the literature. Um, you know, I don't think anyone would say that now even, but it's just the overall arc of Reconstruction has shifted so much that, you know, who cares about recon- like corruption? I think, like I'm thinking of Foner, does he ever talk that much about corruption? It's almost not in the story because he's interested in different questions like marriage and mobility and, and you know, political rights and agency uh, across t- Oh, the former, the, the, the communities of former slaves, institution building, things that Du Bois can't really get into because he doesn't have the data, he doesn't have the evidence for. Um, so I think it's just a sign of the times and the, the argue, you know, when you argue against a historiographic trend, it's hard to fully break free of that same trend. So there's still a lot of discussion of corruption here, but I, I think that's a sign of when the book was written and the fight that Du Bois was, was having here. Um, so... But that's the, his main point here is that there wasn't this like barbaric like seizure of, of overturning of, of civilization. The, the, the white, the, the lost cause kind of narrative would, would, would embrace that. It wasn't like that at all um, in his view. Um, in fact, he focused instead on the counter-revolution. He says, uh, on the whole, one cannot escape the impression that what the whites in Mississippi feared was the experiment of Negro suffrage might succeed. At any rate, they began a revolution known as the Mississippi Plan. There was no labor dictatorship or dream of one. White labor took up arms to subdue black labor and to make it helpless economically and politically through the power of property, end quote. So the story in Mississippi ultimately is the triumph of, of property. Now, for, again, from a modern reader of Reconstruction history, you're like, well, where's the discussion of vigilantism? Where's the discussion of the Ku Klux Klan? Where's the discussion of the Union Leagues uh, and the, the, you know, the violence of the South? That's another kind of topic that Du Bois is not really that privy to, or it's not a big part of his story of the counter-revolution. For him, it's much more in kind of this broad class language of the return of property, like the, rev- the counter-revolution of property. Um, kind of, you know, you get the sense maybe he read the... the 13th premier of Louis Napoleon or something um, when he when he thinks about this he had been reading more and more Marx by this point in his life so of course that that book uh, sorry not the 13th premier the 18th premier of Louis Napoleon is is about the second um, empire right and the the reestablishment of of aristocracy and property after the revolutions of 1848. So anyways, um, then we jump to Louisiana, where we have a similar kind of demography situation, but a very different historical narrative uh, to contend with because there's the the French history. And and again, those are things that Du Bois is not really able to talk about because he doesn't have the evidence. So he's going to kind of continue the story of like, what did um, black civil rights, the right, right to vote, lead to in, in this other state that had a black majority, but also a pretty well-established planter class. Now, again, Louisiana is different. I, I think these don't go well together, actually, because 
And in some ways, Louisiana has more in common with South Carolina in that it had the experience of Reconstruction earlier. You had uh, the seizure of New Orleans early in the war, and you had the beginning of Reconstruction policies all the way back to like 1862 and three, before the Emancipation Proclamation. You have the, the rule of Butler and things like that. So, um, but it's also very much a planter economy. It's a very agrarian, cotton-based culture. So it has that in common with Mississippi, but I think the history is a little different and, and it makes this chapter a little bit cut. Um, now, one interesting thing here is here he does talk about a little bit more of the vigilante violence, which I thought was really big in Mississippi, but um, Du Bois actually has evidence of it for, for um, the, the secret war, what he calls the civil war of secret assassination and open intimidation and murder uh, here. And maybe he's implying it's throughout the South, but, but this is the chapter on Louisiana. And he's mostly grounded in that state during this discussion. Um, he talks about corruption here too, or state indebtedness, which again is another piece of evidence thrown at at African Americans during Reconstruction to say, "See, you couldn't govern; you didn't know how to do this." And and evidence is like, "Look, you ran up these debts." Well, yeah, they they were rebuilding the state, and they were trying to promote progressive policies like railroads, things that would help both blacks and whites after the war. And that's cost money. It's the same story with like South Carolina. Like, yeah, this the shit costs money, you know, and you can't like benefit from that. Write about this in 1920. Say how bad this was when you're riding in the railroad around. So it's uh, I think Du Bois is right to point out that, you know, this was actually investments in 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 the state and it was investments that whites weren't willing to make. So anyways, two, two slightly different stories. Uh, I think the carpetbaggers have more of a role in the Louisiana story, too, maybe because of the length of Reconstruction there. Um, and in both cases, it's like black voters were, you know, of course going to side with the Republicans, and, and that helped them achieve power, if not directly through, through white governors in those cases. But... Um, it's it's a little murkier, I think, the South Carolina case. He's he's very confident with South Carolina that these were like progressive policies showing agency and political sophistication among black voters. But here's how he concludes it. In South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana, the proportion of Negroes was so large that their leaders of sufficient power and the federal control so effective that for the years 1868 to 1874, the will of black labor was powerful. And so far as it was intelligently led and had definite goals, it took perceivable steps towards public education, confiscation of large incomes, betterment of labor conditions, universal suffrage, and in some cases, distribution of land to the peasant. Very, very Marxist language here, obviously. Ignorant and vicious leadership, white and black, hindered and even stopped this progress. And gradually tended towards a duel between the northern and southern capitalists in an effort to control labor. This succeeded first in Louisiana, then in Mississippi, and finally in South Carolina. So again, where blacks were most politically powerful, we see the, the, the reaction came slowest. Um, he finishes, in each case, labor control passed into the hands of white Southerners who combined with white labor to oust Northern capitalists. And this leads us to chapter 12, which uh, is about the white proletariat in the South more directly. That's this is the chapter of the white proletariat in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. Again, very different states. Um, 
But what they have in common is a white majority, a clear white majority. Um, um, you know, of course, Alabama's a little bit more economically like Mississippi, I think, but Florida and Georgia, a little probably a more diverse economy. Um, but if we look at the demographics in Alabama, 526,000 whites and 437,000 blacks at the time of the Civil War. Um, when Alabama joined the Union, it was 85,000 whites and 42,000 blacks. So the proportion of blacks rose over the course of the antebellum period. Um, but ultimately, these were areas where, because you didn't have a black majority, Republican rule, if it was going to take root in these places, would need the alliance of poor whites. So that's why our focus shifts to the white proletariat, because that's the largest group in these areas. And they're going to be the makers of history, the holders of political power in an era of universal suffrage. So the story in Alabama is going to be one here. Actually, it does mention the, the Klan a little bit. Um, I'm surprised it's not more in this book. Uh, but I've just read so much Reconstruction history. And I have read this years ago, but it's, um, I thought I'd have a bigger part in the story. But anyways, it is mentioned here. But the main story here is the alliance between the planters and the poor whites, which, of course, is something we see in many, you know, at the end of Reconstruction, it's often seen as a, you know, the planter class was able to get the poor whites back on their side using race politics as a way to undermine Republican governments. And that kind of lays out the, the future history of, of, of the New South up until maybe up until now, right? Um, you know, LBJ said civil rights is going to lose us the South forever. Um, so anyways, um, he says, the planters and the poor whites, this is Du Bois saying, the planters and poor whites after the first enmity early made alliance in Alabama and their concentrated social weight descended on whites who dared to vote with the blacks. Such persons were warned and attacked until they fled the state or made peace with the new masters. Later, northern capital poured into the poor white belt to develop coal and iron. Convict labor was widely used to an exploitation developed with labor divided by race and helpless, end quote. Obviously, I mean, he's almost like, thinking about like the interracial unionism argument I talked about before, um, something he hinted at earlier in the book. Uh, yeah, it's like there's literally elements like that where you're like, wow, like he predicted like where scholarship would be like in the 90s and the early 2000s on some of these, um, these issues. You think of like the great work done on the black coal fields, for instance, in, the, in, the, in Alabama. Um, but... It, it, is, it is kind of repetitive of support, and, and that's just the nature of this history, right? Because that's what eventually happened in pretty much every state. Um, but he's making two arguments here. One is about the reaction to democracy. But then the consequence of the democracy is the arrival of northern capital. And northern capital thrived in the environment where there isn't democracy, right? And that's still the case today, where we see capitalism move into places that are not democratic and therefore able to easily exploit the workers in those areas. So two stages, destroy the, the planter and, and poor white alliance, destroys democracy, then white capital can come in and take advantage of, of the cheap labor. Now, Georgia, he presents as a somewhat interesting case in which uh, he actually says early on in Reconstruction politics, there was an alliance, a, a, a coalition of planters and blacks that started even earlier uh, before Reconstruction was fully implemented. Um, 
and tried to kind of work with, with uh, the empowered blacks. Now, for Georgia, of course, is another non-black majority state, but one that with poor whites and with disenfranchisement of former Confederates, they were able to establish some power for themselves. But like in Alabama, when the new political life begins, that's Reconstruction, the planter and poor whites combined to put the Negroes out of the legislature. So once again, we see a reaction built on the alliance of poor whites and the planter class. Then we get uh, Florida, where he kind of explores a slightly different theme, and that is this kind of muddying the waters of, of Republican government. He, he, he talks about here how basically he kind of takes on the corruption issue directly by saying um, like lawlessness, by which he means corruption and things like that, um, was actually pushed by the ruling class. Um, corruption was pushed by the ruling class to discredit carpetbaggers. Bribes were used by the planters against blacks in government. And then they would turn around and say, see, you're corrupt, uh, even though the corrupting influence was the, the ruling class of the South. So here the, he's starting to try to take on this corruption argument, saying, well, really the cause of this corruption that everyone notices was where the, follow the money, right? Where, were the, where was the bribes coming from? They weren't coming from poor whites or former slaves who didn't have shit. They, it came from the people of wealth. So if you're going to blame corruption, you can't just blame at the recipients. You have to blame it at them. And now he kind of implies motive here, which it might be true, and knowing how disgusting the counter-revolution of property was in, in the Reconstruction South. Maybe there's something to that. But he does kind of imply motive that it was deliberately done to kind of muddy the waters and discredit um, black voters. Um, now, he relies a lot of this on uh, a book by a guy named Wallace, Carpetbagging Rule in Florida, which is another one of these black historians that he, he praises. Um, so like the other chapters, this chapter on Alabama, Georgia, and Florida does combine like Dunning School history, but also a new generation, uh, you know, younger black historians who are beginning to write a different history of, of, of Reconstruction. So anyways, I guess that's going to be it. Uh, I think it's pretty straightforward what he's trying to do here. Um, so in the next episode, we're going to look at uh, two chapters. Uh, the next chapter will be the last of our, of our survey of states, which will look at the border states and Virginia and the frontier. So it's covering a lot of territory, basically North Carolina, Virginia, and the border states, and uh, Arkansas, Texas, all of those areas. So I think we're going to get a really... Rush, Missouri, I think, is looked at in this chapter. So we're going to get a, it's a long chapter. It's like 50-some pages, but it's covering a lot of ground. Then we're going to have his kind of summation of the end of Reconstruction, which is called the counter-revolution of property. Um, and so it's a big, two big chapters that are going to wrap up uh, most of the book. The final episode will cover uh, three chapters, but they're all shorter chapters. The founding of the public school, back towards slavery, and the very, very important propaganda of history, which I think we actually talked about in the Du Bois series before as a separate essay, but now we're going to talk about it as the capstone uh, to this, which is really why this book remains so important for us to read now. The, the, the actual data he presents has been overshadowed by more recent historiography, of course, but that summation. The, the, uh, the propaganda of history is still so important for every history student to, to read and consider. So anyways, that's going to be it.
for now. Um, so I've kind of, I do sort of have a New Year's resolution. And that is basically to read more, to spend less time worrying about work while I'm at work and spend more time reading uh, when I'm at work and you know, reading on company time, if you will. Um, and so just to share, I'm not gonna like talk about these on the podcast. I might make YouTube videos on the, for some of this stuff if I ever feel like getting back into making YouTube videos. But I've been reading Confederate Reckoning by Stephanie McCurry, uh, Power and Politics in the Civil War South. This published 14 years ago, 2010, but it seems like a really classic. It just seems like a good summation of the problem of Confederate nationalism. A wonderful book that talks about how Confederate nationalism was rooted in this idea of brotherhood of white men, um, but the exclusion of women and slaves from their vision of the Confederacy nation kind of doomed them. Um, and so it's pulling together a lot of wonderful scholarship uh, uh, that's been talked about, that's been talking about Confederate nationalism and women in the South and, of course, African-Americans in the Civil War South, what they've done. Um, and then I've, I've, I'm almost done with that one. And I've been also reading Laura and Rebecca Skarloff's Black Culture and the New Deal, which I kind of only glanced at the introduction of. But when I'm done with Confederate Reckoning, I'm going to read this one next, which is about the civil rights um, in the 30s and 40s. And I've been also reading a couple chapters a day, uh, rereading Jeffrey Parker's Global Crisis, War, Climate Change, and Catastrophe in the 17th Century, which is just a wonderful book I recommend. Um, so I think I'm going to add a little bit to this podcast of just kind of keeping up on what I'm reading. I'm also reading Heinlein now, so I've, you know, I'm going to start keeping better records, too, of, of what I've been reading, um, or at least glancing at. And, and making notes on that. So um, I'm trying to gonna have a, a big, important year for reading is what I'm really trying to aim for. Obviously, keep this podcast going. Uh, like We're going to do Richard Wright after looking at Du Bois. Baldwin, if my books come in, that's, that's an if. I'm still waiting for some deliveries. It's hard to get s stuff in Taiwan. Um, so Wright and Baldwin. And then after that, uh, go back to looking at, uh, kind of finish up the 20th Century Girls series, which I started with. Uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor, of course, has to be looked at. I've been holding that off for too long. Um, Carson McCullers and, and some other writers like that. So that's looking ahead for the rest of the year, what we'll be doing on this podcast. Obviously, finish up the Heinlein read-through, which will probably take another uh, eight months, nine months, if I, if I have a good pace on that. But I, I just want to get into more uh, literature and maybe some stories, too. I got some new anthologies. So um, I'm going to try to have a big year for reading. Um, maybe that'll mean less time for other things, but it should be good for me. It's been a while since I've felt inspired to read, and I'm going to try to take the advantage of this, of, of New Year's, to commit myself to, to something I really love doing. It's just sometimes I get, I let other things get in my mind. So it's, it's really going to force me to compartmentalize things that stress me out and put those away and just try to live the life I want to live. Living it out now, even though I'm at work, start thinking about what my retired life might be like. So anyways, um, that's my hope. So anyways, it's, um, yeah, we're going to finish up Du Bois over the next week. So uh, next episode, we'll look at chapters... 13 and 14 of Black Reconstruction in America. I'm getting close to finishing up this work. So uh, let me know what you think of this book or any of the 
observation he makes, and if you've been reading Reconstruction historiography, uh, you know, let me, you know, maybe you've read some stuff that I haven't got to read yet, so share your thoughts with me. Um, so that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. That I got until I die. So I'm gonna stand up, take